Let's uh, just bow our hearts again as we come before the word this morning. Heavenly Father, as we just turn to the scripture once again, Lord, we ask you to speak to us this morning. Father, we don't want to just remain where we are in our lives. We want to move forward. We want to grow. Lord, we recognize that a, a child doesn't stay at the same size, the same height. But Lord, their physical frame changes. And Lord, as we grow spiritually, we want to change. We want to become more like Jesus. And Lord, we recognize that that is going to come through the reading of your word. It's going to come through the working of your Holy Spirit in our lives. It's going to come from, Lord, the time that we spend on our knees before you. Lord, as you transform us by that amazing grace. And Lord, as we just turn to your word this morning, just speak to us again, we pray. Help us to see things here, Lord, that will encourage us, that will edify us, Lord, that will challenge us. But Lord, may we go from here this morning knowing that we've been in the presence of the living God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Second Kings is already turning out to be quite a, an incredible study for us. So many things that I think we've seen, the Lord's showing us. Um, just to recap really what we've seen so far. Um, we've seen these miracles that Elisha has been performing or God has been doing through Elisha. Um, we noted, of course, that Elijah, Elijah's predecessor, had done a number of miracles, but Elisha had asked for a double portion of the anointing. And clearly he seems to have got that. We look in the text and we find there's eight specific miracles we can attribute to Elijah. There's 16 that we can attribute to Elisha. Well, well the first seven of these that we've really looked at so far, we've just seen God's grace. You know, and these aren't just, as first sometimes may seem, random miracles that were done because when you read through the text if you're just reading through you know your bible in a year and i encourage you to do that you know sometimes you read over these things and you don't necessarily pause and stop to meditate on them and it just seems a random list why did god choose to use these but as we've seen already god is showing you what his character is like now we have those names of god that we've already spoken about revealed in scripture and each one of these miracles reveals a little bit more of god's character of god's nature so these aren't just miracles that some lucky person happens to benefit from. It's not the way it works. This is something that is there for you and I. Now the first of those we saw in chapter 4, in the first seven verses, God's provision. And of course in the New Testament we're told that God will supply all of our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Now of course there is a difference between needs and wants and sometimes we get frustrated because we don't get the things we want but God doesn't promise to give us what we want but what we need. I have three children who love chocolate and they want as much chocolate as they get but I know that their needs don't necessarily mean that we should just give them as much chocolate as they want. You understand the difference between needs and wants and God of course is a loving father and knows better than we do. Then there's the posterity that we looked at. The whole idea of this lasting name in Israel. It was so important to have a family name that carried on. Well, you and I have been given something far better because we've been adopted into God's family. And we've been given his name. You know, you can call yourself a Christian. What a privilege that you can call yourself by the name of Jesus Christ. The one who created everything. You don't have to apply you don't have to write off and give all your reasons why you should be allowed this and then wait for months until some sort of decision is made about you, whether you are worthy, whether you deserve the honour of that name. You simply bow the knee. You confess with your mouth, you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that God has raised him from the dead. 
And forever, forever onwards, from that point, you carry the name of a Christian. What an honour. We've also seen that miracle of healing from death to life. And, you know, for all of us, we've experienced that. We've been born again. Spiritually, we were dead. You know, once again, we said before that we're made up of three component parts, body, soul, and spirit. Of course, we understand the physical part, the body. Uh, our soul is who we are. It's comprising of our heart and our mind in Scripture. And then our spirit is our conscience, effectively. It's the God-conscious part of us. Now, the spirit died back in Eden. And every human being on this earth that is not born again is spiritually dead. And that's why when we are born again, what happens? God doesn't just recreate a new spirit and say, off you go, there you go. He puts into us his Holy Spirit. We're better off than we were before. We should shake Adam's hand when we get to heaven and say thank you. Of course, you know, God would have preferred that we could have got to this place without going through sin. And of course, without going through the death of his son. But look how we've benefited. The peace that the Bible speaks about that passes understanding, you know, in the midst of any kind of trial. And so often those trials, as we see in chapter 4, verse 38 to 44 and so on, you know, those trials surround our daily lives, our provision, our need of food, our need of clothing. You know, Jesus speaks about this in Matthew's gospel as well. But when we are in Christ, what a great comfort and peace we have. That passes understanding. It's beyond our natural ability to reason. Then there's that cleansing. We see that with the healing of Naaman, the leper. And we've been cleansed. You know, leprosy was an uncleansable thing. And yet God does the impossible. And he's done the impossible in us. And he promises to continually clean us, to cleanse us. You know, one of the big problems that all other religions have, they have their ways of appeasing their God or gods. But they don't deal with the conscience. The book of Hebrews makes it clear. And even the Jewish religious system, with all the sacrifices, doesn't deal with the problem of the conscience. Because you can do whatever... You can go on whatever pilgrimage, you can keep whatever rules or whatever, and you may be able to do it to some degree. And it might make you feel a bit better about yourself, but it doesn't cleanse or purge your conscience. Nothing can do that but the blood of Jesus Christ. And we've been cleansed. It's a wonderful thing. Then we've seen already this restoration to ministry. This is what we're looking at with this uh, whole strange kind of miracle with the axe head. But that which had been lost again returned. That one who had lost his cutting edge, being given a second chance. And these miracles of God's grace are there for you and I. And then we've seen also God's mercy, not wrath. And again, we're all beneficiaries of that. And just to remind us again what we're told in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. So it's no surprise as we look back in this historical account in Second Kings that we're seeing things that apply to our lives right now. Paul says that those things weren't just written down as a bit of information to see you know, what happened a long time ago. They're written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And of course we see it being dramatically played out in these things and how they impact our lives. So let's carry on in chapter 6. We didn't complete it last time, so we're going to move on. Uh, we're picking up verse 24. And we read, And it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadid, king of Syria, gathered all his host and went up and besieged Samaria. 
Now, once again, this is, uh, is a battle that should never have happened. Just like so often we have battles in our own life where we haven't dealt with sin. God maybe has given, given us an opportunity to repent of our sin, to turn away, to, to lay it down. And we haven't really done that. And sometimes those things come back. And this is exactly what had happened. Israel had had the opportunity to deal with the Syrians, but they hadn't. And now Ben-Hadid, the king of Syria, once again, this king who'd been spared, now <laughs> to him the peace treaty that effectively they'd agreed meant nothing to him. He comes once again and besieges Samaria. Now bear in mind, we said already, as had been prophesied, God said through their disobedience, they would find themselves being victims of sieges and so on. And we'll look at some scriptures in that, uh, that uh, vein in just a moment. But we read verse 25. And there was a great famine in Samaria. Wow, as if a siege isn't enough. On top of that siege, we've now got a famine. Now, it may well be that the famine is a direct result of the siege. It may not necessarily be that there was no rain and therefore no produce. In fact, more likely it's because they were besieged, there was no way of getting food and supplies in and out of the city. And that's what brought about the famine. And they besieged it until, we're told, an ass's head, a donkey's head, was sold for fourscore pieces of silver. And the fourth part of a cab of a dove's dung for five pieces of silver. Now, none of those things sound particularly appetizing, do they? But you see, you've got to put yourself in this kind of position and think, what would it have been like... For you to want to go out and buy a donkey's head to eat for tea. Or, worse still, some dove's dung. But um, that's the state that they were in. One of the the commentaries said, uh, The records of sieges show that both animal and human excrement have been used as food under circumstances of extreme necessity. You know, you think, how desperate have you got to to get to that place? But... People have done so. Albert Barnes in his commentary says, uh, As the donkey was unclean, it would not be eaten except in the last resort. And his head would be its worst and cheapest part. So, just trying to paint the picture here of just how bad the situation was. People were absolutely desperate. The Syrian army, this powerful army, is surrounding Samaria. The people are trapped inside. They've run out of food. There is nothing left. They are desperately on anything that we can imagine. The um, reference there to that fourth part of a cab. A cab is just a unit of measurement, obviously. Um, rabbinical writers list it as the smallest of all the dry measures that could be used. So it's just a small amount is what they're implying here. Just again, how desperate the people were in Samaria. Uh, verse 26, And as the king of Israel, this is King Jehoram, the son of Ahab, remember our context of which king we're looking at here, so Ahab's, sons, Ahab's second son that sat on the throne, was passing by upon the wall. So he's going out, he's doing his rounds, just seeing how things really are. And there cried a woman unto him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the lord do not help thee, when shall I help thee? Out of the barn floor, out of the wine press? Kind of a sarcastic response, but really what he's saying is, You're asking me to help? What can I do? If God is choosing not to help us, well, I can't do anything. Immediately he's blaming God for the situation. 
<laughs> you know, we may cry out to man, but the truth is, if God is not for us, then we really are in a predicament. Of course, Paul does tell us in the New Testament that if God is for us, then who could be against us? It's going to the other side of that coin. But then we read on, and this is a little uncomfortable. Let's read, verse 28. And the king said unto her, What aileth thee? Now, clearly he's looking at this woman, seeing that there's some serious distress here. And she answered, This woman, speaking of a friend or whoever, said unto me, Give thy son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and did eat him. And I said unto her on the next day, Give thy son that we may eat him. And she had hid her son. Well, that's a little bit uh, harrowing, isn't it? Uncomfortable. I mean, can we really see that that could have happened? You know, we find things like this in the Bible. And there are people that will say, but why would that be in the Bible? Well, I think this is just another testimony to the fact that what we've got here is God's word. Because we don't just have all the nice pretty things. We've got the reality of what life can really be like at the lowest level. Let me take you back to the book of Deuteronomy. And read what was written by Moses. This is in the Song of Moses, right at the end of Deuteronomy. God gives Moses these words. And this is just a portion of it. Picking up verse 48. It says, Therefore thou shalt serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee. Now let me just get the context. God has given a whole load of things of blessing for them, if they obey. But he's saying, if you disobey God, this is what's going to happen. Thou shalt serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee, in hunger and in thirst, and in nakedness and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he has destroyed thee. The Lord shall bring a nation against thee from far, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose tongue thou shalt not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, which shall not regard the person of the old, nor show favour to the young. And he shall eat the fruit of thy cattle and the fruit of thy land until thou be destroyed. So speaking of those nations that would come against them, they destroy their produce. They eat it, they take it away. Which also shall not leave thee either corn nor wine nor oil nor the increase of thy kind or thy flocks or thy sheep until he's destroyed thee. Now you remember looking back through the time of Judges, you've got the time of Gideon. Why is Gideon threshing? Where he is in the wine press, rather than the threshing floor would be on the top of the hill. Why? So the wind would blow the the chaff away. And he's threshing in the the wine press, right down low. Very difficult to thresh there, but he's doing it to hide the grain from the Midianites. Just as had been prophesied, we see throughout Israel's history, things getting progressively worse. And these things starting to happen to them. Their nations around them taking away the things that they were growing and their cattle and so on. But he carries on and says, verse 52... And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates. Now, we saw a little while back the first time that had happened. And now we're seeing it again. Until thy high and fenced walls come down, wherein thou trustest throughout all the land. And he shall besiege thee in all thy gates throughout all thy land, which the Lord thy God has given thee. And thou shalt eat the fruit of thine own body, the flesh of thy sons and of thy daughters, which the Lord thy God has given thee in the siege and in the straightness wherein 
thine enemies shall distress thee. So that the man that is tender among you and very delicate, his eye shall be evil toward his brother and toward the wife of his bosom and toward the remnant of his children which he shall leave. So that he will not give to any of them of the flesh of his children upon whom he shall eat because he has nothing left him in the siege and in the straightness wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee in all thy gates. And the tender and delicate woman among you which would not adventure to set the soul of her foot upon the ground for delicateness and tenderness, her eye shall be evil toward the husband of her bosom, and toward her son, and toward her daughter, and toward her young one that cometh out from between her feet, and toward the children which she shall bear. For she shall eat them for want of all things, secretly in the siege, and straightness wherewith thine enemies shall distress thee in thy gates." If thou will not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in the book, in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful, and the plagues of thy seed even great plagues, and of long continuance, and sore sickness, and of long continuance, and it goes on from there. God was saying to Israel, look, if you follow me, there'll be blessing. But if you choose not to follow me, these things will happen to you. Now this isn't, let's get the context. God isn't saying that God is going to make this stuff happen. But this is the result of abandoning God. And as horrible as this record is that we're reading this morning, this is how desperate people had got. The place that their lives are plummeted to, without hope, without God. Just read you a quote from Oswald Chambers. He says this, When God wants to show you what human nature is like apart from himself, he has to show you in yourself. If the Spirit of God has given you a vision of what you are apart from the grace of God, and he only does it when his Spirit is at work, you know that there is no criminal who is half so bad in actuality as you know yourself to be in possibility. My grave has been opened by God. And I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. God's Spirit continually reveals what human nature is like apart from His grace. And you know, we way back in the garden chose that we wanted to do things our way. And all the problems we have, all the... The depravity of man is as a result of us trying to do things our way. We can't blame God for the human condition. It's what we wanted. It's what we asked for. And suddenly we're brought face to face with it and it makes us sick. You know, you may remember the account of what took place at Masada, this place in Israel, when... The Romans besieged this place. 960 people killed themselves because they didn't want to be taken captive by the Romans. I mean, what kind of desperate state have you got to be in that you would listen to the leaders in the community as it was that stood up and said, look, this is our best option? Interestingly, even today, when the IDF soldiers are sworn in, they do a torchlight march up to Masada and declare Masada will never fall again. 
I was going to do something for these young men and women that are joining the IDF. As they think back on their history, as they visit this place where 960 people chose to take their own lives rather than be captured by the enemy. Of course, for Israel, these young men and women that are training the IDF know that they don't have the option of losing. If Israel ever loses a war, they are gone. They can't afford to lose. I, back in 2007, had the opportunity to go to Israel. And it was a great time, very blessed time. Lovely to see some of the places we read of in Scripture firsthand. But one of the places we visited was Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Memorial Museum. And walking around, there's so many harrowing things that you read and see. There's kind of videos that are running and things. And One of the really... Well, just emotionally challenging moments was when you walk over a a glass floor and underneath you are just a sea of shoes of all those that have been put to death, killed, gassed, bulldozed into ditches or whatever. And then suddenly... As you look down, you see that so many of those shoes were children's shoes. And you just see man's inhumanity towards man. The picture there of a parent with a child about to be shot. So many lives just destroyed. And I remember reading a, another plaque about a woman who had killed her own child, who had suffocated her baby to death, just so the Nazis wouldn't get her. And you just think, how desperate would you have to be to think that the best option is to kill your own child. We read back in 2 Kings, chapter 6, verse 13, it came to pass that when the king heard the words of the woman, that he rent his clothes. Possibly the same emotion that we feel right now as we think of those things. Just disgusted, just so frustrated. So this is not the way it should be. And we're told he passed by upon the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth within upon his flesh. So this is the king himself now desperate, looking at his own people, seeing these things happen before his eyes. But then look, then he said, God do so and more also to me. If the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, shall stand on him this day. This is amazing. See, remember back, Elijah had been blamed for the drought and the famine and things and so on. And now Elisha, in like manner, is also being blamed for Israel's troubles. You see what happens? We find ourselves in these predicaments. We know that it's wrong. And we blame God for it. 
We blame God's people. We blame God's representatives. Elisha here, effectively now under the sentence of death, because of the circumstances. This is kind of an inverted wisdom that the world kind of employs. In John 16, verses 1 through 4, we read, These things I have spoken unto, uh, unto you, that you should not be made to stumble. They will put you out of the synagogues. Jesus speaking to his disciples, and it applies to us, because the Jews would have met in synagogues, they, they were kicked out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Just as it was for Elijah, as it was for Elisha. The same thing for us. The people will look at us as Christians. And Christians will be put to death because we will be perceived to be the troublemakers. We're told these things they will do to you and because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things I have told you that when the time comes you may remember that I told you of them. Jesus warning us that things will get tough for us. Back in Kings again. But Elisha sat in his house and the elders sat with him. And the king sent a man from before him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, See you how this son of a murderer is sent to take away mine head? God just revealing to Elisha what's going on. He says, look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. The, the idea seems to be that this messenger is going to come in, he's going to deliver his message, but then they're not going to let him go. They're going to keep him there. Because, he says, it's not the sound of his master's feet behind him. And while he yet talked with them, behold, the messenger. Now, on the surface, it could be a little confusing. We reference this time, the messenger is the king. It's the one who originated the message. Okay? Uh, in the Hebrew, the same word is used here for ambassador, angel, king, or messenger. So it depends on the context as to which one of those would apply. So the original messenger has been now kept. The king now is coming. And we're told uh, the king came down unto him and said, Behold, this evil is of the Lord. See what he's doing? Blaming God for his predicament. Whose fault was it? His fault, because he rejected God. He didn't allow the nation to get in the state that it was in. And he says, what, should I wait for the Lord any longer? (laughs) You see, King Jehoram effectively declares that God is to blame. And that as his prophet, Elisha should pay. Barnes, in his commentary, just phrases it like this. He says, Behold, this evil siege with all its horrors is from Yahweh, whose prophet you are. Why should I wait for Yahweh? And then, obviously, gives his threat to, to Elisha again. You know, it's incredible. Right, we're going to chapter 7 now, just to lighten up things just for a moment. Um, we'll come back and join the text in a second. The chapter break here seems to be in the wrong place, because we should have had the chapter break probably where we started this morning. Um, but just to uh, mention, the chapter breaks that we have in our Bible actually come from Archbishop Stephen Langton, um, 1150 to 1228. He was an incredible man, really loved the Bible, and really sought after God. He was part of the Catholic Church, as most of the world was at that time. And as a result of him being appointed Archbishop, King John at the time rejected, didn't want to accept it. He didn't want the Pope to be able to appoint 
the archbishops in this country felt he should have that privilege and authority. And so Stephen Langton ends up fleeing. He goes to France for a while and he stays there. But eventually the pressure upon John becomes too much and uh, he finally concedes and accepts Stephen Langton as the archbishop. And well, that then leads to, because there's so many problems you're aware back in that time with the barons against King John and so on, because he was just taking land when he chose. And that then led to the Magna Carta. And I mention that because, of course, this year is the 800th anniversary of the signing of the Magna Carta in 1215. And so this rule of law is laid down. Um, Stephen Langton, clearly one of the, the key people in uh, getting it drafted and so on. And then within a couple of years, John then dies and then his son comes to the throne. And then we have a couple of revisions and uh, Stephen ends up removing a couple of clauses, including the implication that rebellion against the king was okay. Stephen was very much against that from a biblical perspective. His position was the king does not have the freedom to do whatever he wants. He's not above the law. But at the same time, the subjects of the king should be faithful and obedient to the king. So really interesting character. If you want to do a bit of reading historically, you'll find uh, a bit more about him. But again, this is why we have the chapter breaks in the Bible that we do. I just thought I'd throw that in this morning because we have this chapter break in a strange place. Um, most of them he's got very well, but that's one of the ones that possibly uh, we could have moved. Let's just carry on then with the text into chapter 7. And we read, Then Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. So now Elisha speaking to the king, to those that are standing around. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time shall a measure of fine flour be sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. Okay, so this situation is brought about by the king's disobedience and rejection of God. We've seen that already. It brings about this age-old question of why God allows suffering. You know, the reality is, as I've said already, that man chose this life back in the Garden of Eden. You know, the reason we have suffering is because of the falls, because of sin. It's not God's plan. It's not God's design. But it is part of the way things are now that we've chosen to do things our way. Of course, God promises for those that put their trust in him that he'll give us that peace and all those things we spoke about earlier. An abundant life. Then a lord on whose hand the king leaned, so kind of somebody who the king trusted, a trusted aid of the king, answered the man of God and said, that's Elisha, and said, Behold, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, might this thing be mocking? Yeah, right. God can't do that. You can't do that, is really what he's saying. And he said, Behold, this is now Elisha, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not eat thereof. Little prophecy here. Elisha saying, Okay, well, you're going to see God do this, but you won't benefit from it. You know, there's lots of people in the world that will mock at God and they'll, they'll laugh and they'll joke about things. They'll, they'll speak about the return of Jesus, they'll talk, talk about the need of salvation, and they, they speak mockingly. Well, they will see, but they won't be able to eat thereof. They won't be able to partake thereof. They'll have lost their opportunity. See, unbelief is a great sin that God will judge. And then we read, and there were four leprous men at the entering of the gate. And they said one to another, why sit we here until we die? We sit around, mustn't crumble. Sorry. Um, verse 4, and we say, we will enter into this city, then the famine is in the city, and, if we, and we shall die there. And if we sit still here, we die also. Now therefore come and let us fall into the host of the Syrians. If they save us alive, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die. 
you know, they've come to that place in their lives, they realize, look, staying here is not good. Let's just go and surrender ourselves to the Syrians. If they kill us, they kill us. If they don't, then, you know. So they go. And they rose up in the twilight to go unto the camp of the Syrians. And when they were come to the uttermost part of the camp of Syria, behold, there was no man there. For the Lord had made the host of the Syrians to hear a noise of chariots and a noise of horses, even the noise of a great host. And they said one to another, Lo, the king of Israel has hired against us kings of the Hittites and kings of the Ethiopians to come upon us. Wherefore they arose and fled in the twilight and left their tents and their horses and their asses, even the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. So the situation, this army that's been laying siege has heard the noise of what they perceive to be an approaching army. And so they flee. And they just leave their tents and everything is there. And then, verse 8, when these lepers came to the uttermost parts of the camp, they went into one tent. And did eat and drink and carried thence silver and gold and raiment and went and hid it and came again and entered into another tent and carried thence also and went and hid it. They were a great time. Suddenly, no, no more problem with food and drink. It's there in abundance. But then they said one to another, We do not well. This day is a day of good tidings and we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household. You see, these were sinners, leprosy of course being a type of sin, saved by God's grace. No, no longer are they going to die through starvation. And they realized that they couldn't keep this great secret. And of course, this applies to us, doesn't it? And Jared shared in our verse of the week last week, this was the verse we looked at. We can't keep this secret We've got something so wonderful. We're sinners that are saved by God's grace. How can we keep it quiet? But notice what we're told here. Who, who they want to go and speak to. They say, come now therefore, let us, that we get when we go and tell the king's household. Who were the king's household? Well, there were those who should have been walking with God, but they'd been led astray. They'd had a, a corrupt leader who hadn't wanted to follow God. And so they'd been thrust into this predicament as well. You know, we've got a, a famine today, a similar situation. We read in Amos 8, 11, Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, of course, that applies specifically to Israel. But you know, the same is true for us. In uh, 2 Timothy, we read, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust, they shall heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. We live in a, a world, we have a church system where so many have poor leaders that don't follow God as they should. You know, and people have got itching ears and they've heaped up teachers that say what they want them to say. And so many of the churches that we find around this country, around the world, are just like this. And we shouldn't really be surprised. You know, sound doctrine is now almost taboo. 
Doctrine is one of those things we're not really allowed to talk about. It's certainly in most churches. Because, oh, it, it might upset somebody. So instead people are, turn unto fables instead. And we have kind of self-help motivational sermons being given that really don't provide any help whatsoever. Jeremiah had the same problem back in his day, a little bit further on historically than where we are in Kings, but he said, the wise men are ashamed, they're dismayed and taken low, they have rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. Well, today many pastors, ministers, leaders of churches have rejected God's word in favor of man's ideas. And as Jeremiah says, what wisdom is in them? Jeremiah 2 verse 8 says, The priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the Lord knew me not. The, the pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. You know, he's saying that, Jeremiah was saying in his day, the pastors didn't know God's word. Well, isn't it the same today? You look around this country, look at the Bible colleges. <laughs> Sometimes we quit to call them, not Bible seminaries, but Bible cemeteries, and really they are. The word of God has died in most Bible colleges. It's now multiple choice. Except one notable thing is missed off of that list of options, and that's the truth. You have a whole load of things that you can believe, providing it's not what the Bible says. I'll just read this to you. Some of you may have heard this before, but Ken Ham... Answers in Genesis uh, made a note of this. It was a, a major poll that was done in America by a leading researcher. It was commissioned by Answer Genesis as a follow-up to an, a poll, an alarming poll by Barna Research. This was going back to 2002, but nothing has changed. In fact, it's probably got worse since then. And there was another poll. And it clearly showed that many have left the church because they no longer believe the Bible is the absolute word of God. Why is that? Because the pastors don't believe the Bible is the absolute word of God. There was a sociologist by the name of uh, Jeffrey Hayden. He conducted a survey amongst 7,441 ministers. These are not congregations. These are the people leading churches. And this is the percentage of those ministers who answered no to the following questions. So the first question is this. Do you accept Jesus' physical resurrection as a fact? Bear in mind, Paul says that is the basis of our faith. Well, incredibly, 51% of Methodist ministers said they didn't accept Jesus' physical resurrection as a fact. 35% of Episcopalian, 33% of American Baptist, 30% of Presbyterian, and 13% of American Lutheran. Of course, this is an American study, but it's no different in this country. Next question was asked, do you believe in the virgin birth of Jesus? Bear in mind, if that's not true, then Jesus isn't the Son of God. 60% of Methodist ministers said they did not believe in the virgin birth. 49% of Presbyterian, 44% Episcopalian, 34% American Baptist, and 19% of American Lutherans all said they didn't believe in the virgin birth. Is it any wonder that people leave the church because they don't believe the Bible anymore when those that are teaching them don't believe the Bible? Final question. Do you believe the scriptures are an inerrant work of God in faith, history, and secular matters? You know, this is really the, the crux of it. You know, do we believe the Bible or not? Is the Bible true? 95% of Episcopalian ministers said they did not believe the Bible was the inerrant work of God. 
These are people that are teaching their congregations. 87% of Methodist ministers. 82% of Presbyterian. 77% of American Lutheran. And 67% of American Baptists all said they don't believe the Bible is the inerrant work of God. Well, what is it then? Work of man? Is it multiple choice? We can pick which bits we like and choose. And how do we know? How do we know which bits are of God and which bits aren't of God? If it's not all the inspired, inerrant, infallible work of God, who is it that decides? You? Me? This is the problem that we have in so many churches around this country. Jeremiah had another problem that we've got in our churches today. In his day, we had people saying to a stock, got a lump of wood or whatever, thou art my father, and to a stone, thou hast brought me forth. They're attributing their origin to a stone. This is where they've turned their back on me, not their face. And <laughs> In the time of their trouble, they will say, arise and save us. Now, notice that idea, though, that we've come from a stone. Because that's exactly what is being taught through evolution. It rained on the rocks for millions of years. The minerals ended up going into the ocean. Eventually that somehow became life, and here we are today. You know, and then we've got the Church of England apologizing to Darwin. The Pope doing similar. You know, you go around many, many churches in this country. And they don't even think it's an issue. They're quite happy to accept that we're the product of time and chance and evolution. And that God guided the process. That's an insult to God. It's an insult to our creator. One of the things that we sing when we get to heaven is praise to our creator. Look in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. You'll see it. Notice again, what we see here though, that although they do this in the day of their trouble, they're going to arise and say, save us. They'll cry out to God when it's the day of the trouble. It's a very similar thing we read in the New Testament in Matthew 7. Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? In thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. Okay, the question then is, are we concerned about the lost? Because if we are, we need to realize that many reside today in churches. So many have laid aside the word of God. They've turned unto fables. Look again at what we see in this portion in Kings. And bear in mind what we read at the beginning that Paul tells us that the things that were written aforetime are there for our learning. They were going to go, the lepers were going to go to the king's household. They weren't going to go to the people. Why, why didn't they go to the people? Why go to the king's household? Because they knew that if they went to the king's household, the people would also hear. And I'd encourage you, if you have friends and family that go to church but that don't know Jesus. Speak to them. You know, it's a lot easier to speak to somebody who already has some sort of understanding of Christianity than sometimes it is to go up to somebody who knows nothing about God and the Bible. But you know what? If we start going and speaking to people that go to church and then all of us start going out 
and preaching to the rest of the city, everybody's going to get to hear. I just challenge you, don't shy away from having conversations with those friends or family or people that you just come into contact with to go to other churches who have been deprived the word of God. Verse 10, we just carry on. So they came and called unto the porter of the city, and they told him, they told them, saying, uh, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no man there, neither voice of man, but horses tied, and asses tied, and tents as they were. And he called the porters, and they told it to the king's house within. So this message gets back to the king. And the king arose in the night and said unto his servants, I will now show you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we be hungry, therefore they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, When they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. Uh, Joram's really kind of a glass half empty type, isn't he? Really? <laughs> Even though Elisha has already prophesied this. And one of the servants answered and said, Let some take, I pray thee, five of the horses that remain, which are left in the city, ones that hadn't been eaten yet. Behold, there is the multitude of Israel. Uh, the uh, left in it behold I say uh, they are even as all uh, the multitude of the Israelites that are consumed and let us send and see so they're going to send this delegation out so they're going to take the last five horses they're going to probably skinny little horses might not be able to go very fast but they're going to travel off now to the camp and see what's there and they took therefore two chariot horses and the king sent after the host of the Syrians saying go and see and they went after them unto Jordan and lo all the way was full of garments and vessels which the Syrians cast away in their haste so they, they travel not just to the camp but they look as the route goes on and they've thrown away their garments and everything's laying over the roadside and the messengers returned and told the king and the people went out and spoiled the tents of the Syrians so a measure, measure of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two measures of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord just as God said he did and the king appointed the Lord on whose hand he leaned, this is the one who doubted, to have the charge of the gate. So he's now going to be the gatekeeper. He's standing guard on the gate, still probably a little bit apprehensive about whether the Syrians are hiding around the corner or not, but he's now on the gate duty. And the people trampled him to death. That's basically what we read. The people trod upon him in the gate and he died as the man of God had said, as Elijah had said, who spoke when the king came down to him and it came to pass as the man of God had spoken to the king saying, two measures of barley for a shekel and a measure of fine flour for a shekel shall be tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. And that Lord answered the man of God and said, Now behold, if the Lord shall make windows in heaven, might such a thing be? And he said, Behold, thou shalt see it with thine eyes, but shall not eat thereof. And so it fell out unto him, for the people trod upon him in the gate, and he died. What a wasteful end of a life of somebody who just would not believe. So stubborn. I mean, how many miracles has Elisha got to do before people start going, You know what, we're going to trust your God. How many things has God got to do for you before you say, okay, I surrender God, I trust. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you once again for your word. And Lord, we just thank you that even though there are many portions, as we've read this morning, that are quite harrowing, that are quite hard for us to read. Lord, you give us the truth. You give us a glimpse in your word of what our lives are really like apart from your grace. And Lord, again, we there rejoice in the grace by which we stand. 
We thank you, Lord, for the abundant provision that you have made for us. And Lord, we are just like those lepers, feasting on your word with this abundance. And yet, Lord, this is a day of good tidings where you've been given the gospel of peace to proclaim. The gospel of the grace of God. And Lord, we don't do well if we just sit and enjoy it. Lord, let us go to all nations. But Lord, let us go to the king's household. Lord, let us speak to those who have been misled, mistaught by a leader that should have been obedient to you. And Father, we pray that you bring in a harvest of souls for your name, for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.